Good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? And I sure did enjoy our time of worship together already this morning. Children, you are dismissed to go spend time with this lovely lady standing right over here to my left. She is going to be spending some time with you. I know some of them may already be out in the hall waiting on her, but if you are still in the room and want to go with her, you are dismissed at this time. It is a joy to be able to speak this morning in Pastor Mike's absence. I am very honored to be able to fill in for him while he's on vacation. And as Pastor Colby just prayed, um, they're coming back today. So we're looking forward to having them back with us. And um, from the pictures I've seen on Facebook, they've had a great time this week spending time with their extended family. Pastor Mike's twin brother was there with them and his sister and her family as well. So um, they've had some great time together this week, but we look forward to them being back with us this evening. Um, I just wanted to take a moment to say how grateful I am to be a part of this church. God has tremendously blessed me over the course of my life in being a part of this church. I was attending this church when I was in college, and then the Lord brought me back here, and I had no idea the plans that he had, but they are always better than mine. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity to be a part of this church. I just want to thank you for your love and your encouragement, your support, your prayers for my family and I. You guys are just amazing, and my family is incredibly blessed to be a part of God's bride here at Trinity Wesleyan. So this morning, we're going to continue um, in the series that Pastor Mike has been preaching through um, in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we will dive in there together in a few moments. So I've been in ministry now for a while, actually 29 years. I know it's hard to believe since I'm 35. But if you don't count growing up as a pastor's son as time served, then it's 29. Other than that, it's been like my whole life. I've been on staff at three different churches during those 29 years, and as you can imagine, I've experienced some very powerful and memorable moments during worship services over the course of that time, memorable for a variety of reasons. I want to share a memory with you this morning of something that happened early in my ministry career in May of 1994. I was 23 years old at the time, so I was about the age that Pastor Colby is now. Amy and I had just gotten married a few months earlier. And it was a Sunday morning that was graduation Sunday at the church where I was serving. I was the music director. The sanctuary was full and the choir that I led was seated in the choir loft on stage for the entire service, making room for more people to be able to sit out in the pews. The choir had just finished singing our special music and I was seated on stage in one of those little mini pews that churches used to have. We were also wearing choir robes which is another thing that was common back in the day in worship services. For those of you who've been in church for a while, can you picture the scene that I'm describing? We actually have choir robes in the closet back over here that the choir used to wear. They hang in the closet now. So after the special music, the pastor was praying before his sermon, and as he was praying, I started to hear a little commotion and whispering going on in the choir loft behind me. I dismissed it as something that would quickly cease and kept focusing on the prayer. The pastor continued to pray, but the commotion didn't stop. In fact, the whispering continued and the sound of the choir members shuffling in their chairs and moving their feet added to the distraction. The pastor kept on praying, and at this point, he invited the entire congregation to join him in reciting the Lord's Prayer. At this point, I'm trying really hard to stay focused on the prayer and not turn around and give that stop being so disrespectful look to the choir. The congregation's voices lift with the pastor and begin, Our Father who art in heaven. And I open my eyes long enough to glance out of my peripheral vision 
to get a glimpse of what was going on in the choir loft. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Choir members are turning pale and all of their eyes are focused on my wife. On earth as it is in heaven. I can't see why they're looking at Amy, but one of the older ladies in the choir caught my attention and pointed at Amy's robe. Give us this day our daily bread. By this point, the stirring in the choir loft has started to catch the attention of other people in the congregation, causing some of them to open their eyes and see what's going on. How the pastor stayed focused with all this going on right behind him was astounding. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I fully turn around at this point and lean over the little railing separating the choir loft from the front of the stage, and I see an enormous wolf spider crawling up the front of Amy's robe. I'm not exaggerating. It was close to the size of a tarantula. And lead us not into temptation. Amy's terrified eyes met mine, and I knew I had to act quickly. So, being the protective husband that I am, I reached for the only thing at my disposal on that little bench. A hymnal. That's right. The next few seconds of my life were a blur. Somewhere in the background I heard, but deliver us from evil. As the choir members seated around Amy immediately backed away when they saw me raise that hymnal over the railing like William Wallace charging into battle. I didn't hear the pastor finish the prayer as I began whacking the spider, crawling on my wife's robe right there in the middle of the worship service. Gasps rang out through the choir loft and Amy's face contained a combination of relief that her hero was saving her and confusion as she shot me that look that wives possess amazing ability to be able to give their husbands in the middle of high stress situations. Husbands, you know that look. It's the one that said, really? A hymnal? That's what you're coming at me with? I managed to stun the spider without injuring Amy and knock it off onto the floor where it could be promptly stepped on and left until after the remainder of the service. And just as the pastor said amen, I whipped around and took my seat as the choir regained their composure and the pastor launched into his sermon. While that story is funny at first, and the people in the choir left that morning had absolutely no intention to be disruptive or irreverent to God, what's sad is that this incident can be a commentary on the condition of worship in many churches today. We find it all too easy to think that it's okay to sing songs of praise to Almighty God, the God who sat enthroned above the cherubim in unapproachable glory, as our text in 2 Samuel points out today, and let, then let all the distractions and cares of this world cause us to check out and lose focus on the whole purpose of being in church in the first place, and that's to worship God or we fail to appreciate what it means to possess a true heart of worship and equate showing reverence to God as something we reserve for Sunday mornings only without regard to the other 167 hours in the week. We need to recover today in our Bible-believing, disciple-making churches the sense of reverence that ought to characterize those who gather in the holy presence of an almighty God. In many churches, the fellowship is warm, and the Bible teaching is faithful. But each week, the people file in and file back out in what is labeled a worship service 
without ever even coming close to sensing the presence of God. It's easy to fall into the disease of playing church, of going through the motions of worship without actually encountering God. But worship should be our reverent response to God's holy presence. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to do something we don't normally do. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read God's word this morning. And I'm going to read the entire 23 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 6. It says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Balah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim and the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Then the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent of David and said that inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. You may be seated. Lord, we thank you today for the truth of your word. We pray that your spirit would just move and speak and that our hearts would be receptive. And God would give you all the glory and honor. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Worship should be a reverent response to God's holy presence. And this is a main lesson that we see in today's passage as David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. David had been king now for over seven years. The kingdom which at first was divided was now consolidated under David's rule. He desired to make the worship of God central in the national life. To do this, he proposed to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the central piece of the Mosaic Tabernacle, to Jerusalem. And we learn from this story that God's holy presence should be the focus of true corporate worship. God is omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere at the same time. But all too often, his presence is not realized everywhere. When God's people come together to worship, they ought to focus on the reality of his holy presence right here among us. In the passage that we just read a moment ago, God's holy presence was symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a, re a rectangular box, and it was about three and three-quarter feet long, about two and a quarter feet wide, and about two and a quarter feet high. It contained the Ten Commandments, and in earlier days, it also contained Aaron's rod, which budded, and a bowl or pot of manna. It was made of wood overlaid with gold. On the top of the Ark was the mercy seat, a solid slab of gold on which the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial lamb once a year on the Day of Atonement. The ark was kept in the Holy of Holies and was always kept covered when it was being moved. The ark was the symbol of God's meeting with his people on the basis of atonement. The Lord told Moses in Exodus, and there I will meet with you. The materials of the ark, gold and wood, were symbolic of the person of Christ as both God and man. The function of the ark as the mercy seat typified the work of Christ as a sacrificial lamb. When we gather as God's people, we gather unto the Lord Jesus who is in our midst. It is because of his person, God in human flesh, and his fulfilling work as the satisfaction of the divine penalty for our sins that we can even draw near unto God. And God's holy presence is an awesome thing. I know we use the word awesome a lot. We say that taco was awesome or that car is awesome. I've come over the last couple of years to try to limit the amount of use I have for the word awesome and reserve it for things that apply to God because he is the one who is truly awe-inspiring. The ark is described here in what we just read in verse 2 as the ark of God which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. The cherubim are angels who dwell in the presence of God. They are awesome in their appearance. They are divine creatures that God has created. And they are associated with fire and lightning and the blinding brightness of the glory of our Lord. Two golden cherubim with their wings touching, overshadowing the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And the only human eyes that could ever view that sight were those of the high priest. And that only once a year in strict accordance with the procedures that God had ordained. As David and the people worshipped before this ark, it's clear that they were worshipping before the Lord, as that phrase occurs six times throughout the passage that we read. As we'll see, even though they had this sense of God's presence, at first they were careless about it, and it had tragic consequences. But God made it explicitly clear that to worship in his presence is an awesome thing, not to be taken lightly. We live in a day 
of flippant Christianity that has brought God down to the good buddy in the sky level. It hasn't actually brought him down to that. There's just a lack of respect and a lack of reverence. And I believe we've lost that proper sense of awe and fear in God's holy presence. There's a story about a pastor who said that Jesus often appears to him and talks with him in the mornings as he is shaving. He shared one day with another pastor about this, and the pastor friend had an incredulous response. He said, how do you keep shaving? If the people today who claim to have seen God really see him for who he is, they wouldn't be as quick to just get online and be following the latest Christian blogger as they would to be falling on their faces prostrate before Almighty God and thanking him for the gift of salvation and forgiveness and grieving over our sin. As we gather to worship, it would transform us and our worship would focus on the truth of who God is as we gather in his holy presence. We should not come primarily just to meet with friends, although fellowship is an important function of the church. We should come primarily to meet with God. True corporate worship involves focusing on the fact that the holy God of the universe is right here in our midst. If the focus of true corporate worship should be the holy presence of God, then reverence in his presence should be our response in true corporate worship. Since the ark was the visible symbol of the presence of God in the midst of his people, you would think that there would be a uniform response on all the part of the people who were in the presence of the ark. But if you go back and trace the history of the ark, you find quite different responses to its presence, even in the passage we read today. And I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about some of those different responses to the presence of God. And I want you to think about, as I share these, which category you might fit in today. The Israelites sometimes treated the Ark of God as a good luck charm, as seen in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The worship of God was a dead ritual for most of Israel at this time. The two priestly sons of Eli were corrupt, committing immorality with women at the doorway of the tabernacle. When they encountered difficulties with the Philistines, some of the Israelites got the idea, let's get the Ark and carry it into battle with us. They were using it as a good luck charm and hoping that God would allow them to win for having it there. But God allowed them to be defeated, and the ark was actually captured by the Philistines. There are churchgoers in our day who attempt to use coming to church like a good luck charm. They're having problems in their lives, and sometimes they think, I'll go to church and see if I can rub God the right way, and maybe he'll fix the problems that are going on in my life. But for them, worship is nothing more than a good luck charm to try to get God to do the things they want him to do. They're not showing genuine reverence for God's holy presence. The Philistines saw the ark of God like a plague, as seen in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines set up the ark after they had captured it next to their false god, Dagon. But the Lord caused their idol to fall down and break into pieces. Next, God struck all of them with tumors and with mice. As you can imagine, the Philistines wanted to get rid of the Ark of God as quickly as possible. They were quite literally uncomfortable in the presence 
of God. Even so, there are those today who feel uncomfortable in the presence of God. It may be from a plague of guilt or conviction when they come near to a person or a church where God's presence is evident and known. They are uncomfortable around those who manifest the presence of the Lord. And we read about Abinadab. He might, might have had what we'd call a ho-hum attitude towards the ark of God. The Philistines sent the ark back to Israel on a cart, and it wound up in the house of Abinadab. It had been there for almost 70 years by David's time. It is significant that we do not read any of the results in Abinadab's household for having the ark of the Lord in his house all those years. We'll see in a moment, we read it just a few minutes ago, that it was in Obed-Edom's house for just three months and resulted in great blessing. But it was in Abinadab's house for 70 years and nothing notable happened. Some churchgoers are like that. They can come for years into a church where God is present, but it has no appreciable effect on their lives. They have a ho-hum attitude towards the presence of God. These are the sort of people that Paul was talking about in his second letter to Timothy when he warns of those terrible days when people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. The kinds of people who are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. It is sobering to think that you can be in the very presence of God and have the opportunity to experience his power. But if your heart isn't seeking after him, you can totally miss the opportunity. Then there's Uzzah, with his treating as common that which is holy attitude. As David and the company moved the ark toward Jerusalem on an ox cart, the oxen stumbled and the ark almost fell to the dirt. Uzzah reached out his hand to steady it, and God struck him dead on the spot. Some folks think that God was a bit touchy and harsh for doing this. Even David, as we read, got angry at God. In fact, I want us to look at those verses again. Let's look back at verses 6 through 10. It says, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. By the way, Perez Uzzah means outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. So what was so bad about what Uzzah did? After all, I mean, he was just trying to help, right? Any wagon driver would have done the same with any valuable piece of furniture under his care, wouldn't he? And that was precisely Uzzah's problem. He saw no difference between the ark of God and any other valuable article. He was overly familiar and desensitized with that which was utterly sacred. Uzzah was the son of Abinadab. He had, grown up in the ark, he had grown up with the ark in his home. It was commonplace to him. What's the big deal, he must have been thinking. 
But he would have and should have known that even the Levitical priests who carried the ark were not permitted to touch it, but carried it on poles inserted through rings that were attached to it. Uzzah knew better, yet he still treated that which was holy as that which was common. People today still do the same thing. Often, they are people who have grown up in the church, and they trifle with the things of God. God has become commonplace to them. Over the course of my ministry, I've heard church folks joke about things that they had done on Saturday night before getting up and serving in various capacities at church on Sunday. I've been deeply troubled at times at the church's flippancy toward God and convicted of my own need to be very, very careful in remembering to treat the holiness and sacredness of God with great respect. Those who have a problem with what God did to Uzzah need to gain the Bible's perspective on God's absolute holiness and man's utter sinfulness. What Uzzah did was actually an act of arrogance. He assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. We need to take God's holiness and our sinfulness seriously. It is only in his grace that God has not struck us dead on the spot as he did Uzzah that day when we've been as arrogant and careless as he was. May we learn from that lesson to never treat the holiness of God as something trivial or common. And David, he got angry and then he grew afraid, but not a healthy fear of the Lord but an unhealthy fear that caused him to draw back and ask, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? There might have been some pride in David's anger. Maybe he was embarrassed in front of the crowd for what God had done. God had rained on David's parade. But the problem wasn't that God hadn't done things David's way, but that David hadn't done things God's way. God's word is clear that the ark had to be carried by the Levites in a prescribed way on their shoulders without touching it, not on an ox cart, as Numbers 4.15 and Numbers 7 verses 6 through 9 describe in detail. So where had they gotten the idea to transport the ark on an ox cart? 1 Samuel chapter 6 verse 7 talks about the Philistines doing that. There are folks in the church who say that they want God's presence but they don't respect God's holiness or obey his commands. They play loose with God's truth. They talk one way, but live another. And when things don't go the way they wanted, they get angry and they blame God. But what we ought to do instead of blaming God is look in the mirror and get on our knees and ask forgiveness and turn from our obedience and pray for God's power and healing in our lives and in the life of our church. How about David's wife, McCall, with her don't-get-fanatical rebuke to the king when she saw him dancing? She was actually David's wife, but here she is called the daughter of Saul to show where she's coming from. Notice her relationship to the worship celebration. She was a spectator. Why wasn't she a participant? She should have been down in the streets rejoicing in the celebration, but instead... She peeked out the window 
and got embarrassed when she saw David. Michal loved David the warrior, but she could not sympathize with David the worshiper. That embarrassed her. Her problem, like that of her father, was pride. David had dealt with his earlier pride, and now he humbled himself to worship the Lord without caring what others thought. McCall was not willing to humble herself, and so the Lord humbled her with the ultimate disgrace in that society, which was barrenness. The critics of true worshipers are always proud spectators, not humble participants. They're concerned about what others may think. They are constantly more worried about managing their own personal image than being abandoned to God in true worship. It doesn't occur to them to be concerned about what God thinks. If we're thinking about ourselves and our image and wanting to manage how we look to the people around us, oh, what if I raise my hand? Someone might think I'm a, a kook for raising my hand. Someone might think I'm being fanatical, like, was, like David was accused of. I remember when I was a student in college here, this was the first place I ever saw someone run the aisles. And that was a gentleman named Brother Funderburk. And I sat back here as a young college student and I saw him get so blessed in worship and he got up and he would say, Pastor Wiggins. He's like, preacher, I'm about, to, I'm about to have to run. And he began running the aisles and he was celebrating and dancing and worshiping before the Lord. He wasn't worried about managing his image. He was most concerned about worshiping before Almighty God. John 3.30 is one of my favorite Bible verses. And it helps me keep perspective about my tendency to focus on my image rather than on God's. It says, he must become greater, I must become less. Some translations say, he must increase, but I must decrease. My phone and wallet are sitting over there at the piano. And I've got one of those cases that my phone goes in. It also holds my debit card and stuff like that in it. And when I got it, I custom ordered it because I wanted to have a Bible verse on the inside of it. Something to remind me every time I opened that wallet to reach for my phone or reach for spending money or something. That verse is what I have in there. He must increase, I must decrease. When I use my phone, whether I'm talking to somebody, whether I'm online, when I'm reaching for my debit card, when I'm reaching for money, in all these things, am I choosing to let God increase in my life and me decrease, for him to become greater, for me to become less? What does image management look like in your life? Are you more concerned about how you look in front of people or how you look in front of God? I love David's response to his wife in verses 21 and 22. It was before the Lord, he says, that I'm dancing and celebrating. Who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel? I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. That was an indication that David's heart was in the right place, and his focus was completely on worshiping God without regard to what other people thought. And finally, we have Obed-Edom, who delighted in God, as we read in verses 10 and 11. We're not completely sure who Obed-Edom was. He was probably a Levite who lived nearby. But he had no problem bringing the ark to his house right after Uzzah was struck dead for touching it. Isn't that amazing? Can you hear him? 
After this happened, hey guys, bring it over here. Put it in my house. I'm fine with that because I desire the presence of God. He was a man whose heart was right before the Lord. The presence of God was not a threat to him. It was delight. He was totally comfortable living with God in the midst of his home. And as a result, the Lord blessed the man and his entire household. When David heard about it, it actually caused him to get his heart right with the Lord. And he joined Obed-Edom in desiring the presence of God again. But Obed-Edom had something to teach David and us. And that he wanted the ark of the holy presence of God with him immediately. Even after Uzzah had been struck dead for touching it. How would you feel if, as happened in the early church with Ananias and Sapphira, someone here was struck dead for trifling with God, and then Jesus bodily appeared and said, I'd like to come live in your home for three months. Would you welcome him? Or would you be nervous? He's actually here, you know. If you revere God in your personal life and daily walk and in your corporate worship, you'd be as delighted at the presence of God as Obed-Edom was. So in closing, and I've got a few pages left, so that remark from pastor doesn't always mean we're at the very end. How could it be that the same ark could be one man's delight and another man's death? How could the ark be one man's pleasure and another man's plague? How could the same ark result in seven different responses? The difference must not lie with the ark of God's presence, but with the hearts of the people who were in contact with the ark. If that is so, where is your heart today? God's presence doesn't dwell in our midst in the form of the ark of the covenant as it once did, but in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit among us. Do you live every day with an awareness of God's presence? Do you come on Sundays expecting to meet with God? One way to answer that question is to ask another question. How carefully do you prepare your heart each day to experience God's presence? The Hebrews didn't have a bad idea in beginning their Sabbath at sundown the night before. That way they were ready for worship the following day. I find it helpful to spend a portion of Saturday getting my heart ready for meeting together with the Lord's body corporately on Sunday. In fact, yesterday, I'll confess, there was a crew out here working on our new playground. I was really torn. I was here on Friday night helping, but yesterday, I knew I needed to spend this time alone with the Lord. So I told Amy, please give my regards and regrets to those who are going to be there working. I'll be alone with the Lord in a cabin at the potter's place. So that's where I was yesterday. Another way to answer the question of whether or not you live daily with an awareness of God's presence and come expecting to meet with God on Sundays is to ask, would you worship any differently if Christ were watching you? I know what you're thinking already. <laughs> I read of a pastor who shared of a dream he had one night that transformed his ministry. He dreamed he was in his pulpit ready to deliver his Sunday morning message when a stranger with a regal yet loving look caught his attention. As he preached, his eyes kept returning to that unique guest. While the closing hymn was being sung, he decided to try to go and speak with that guest. But before he could get to the back door, the unknown man was gone. As the dream continued, the same person came back again at the evening service. Once more, 
he slipped out before the minister could shake his hand. Turning to one of his staff members, the pastor inquired, who was that man? Staff member said, oh, you didn't realize that was Jesus of Nazareth? The pastor said, you mean Christ himself was listening to me? What did he say? exclaimed the preacher. But before the staff member could reply, the pastor awoke with a jump. It had all been so real that he hardly believed he had been dreaming. For the first time, he fully appreciated the reality that the Lord Jesus is present in a special way when his people gathered to worship. This thought changed his ministry. So what about it? Would you sing differently if Christ were listening? Would you worship any differently if Christ were watching? Would you listen to his word being preached any differently if he were sitting in the seat right next to you? The reality is, he is listening. He is watching and he is here. The question is, are you even aware of his presence? Do you wake each morning expecting him to be present? Do you come each week to church expecting to meet with him as we gather in his name? Do you live each day with a desire to commune with Almighty God and to walk according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Go through the list of various responses to God's presence in the ark one more time with me. Which one fits you the closest? Could you, like the Israelites of old, be hoping that God's presence will be just a good luck charm? That if you'll go to church, maybe God will bless your plans for your life? Or like the Philistines, could it be that God's presence makes you uncomfortable? Could there be guilt or conviction in your life? Maybe because you've never surrendered your life to Christ and accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior. Or like Abinadab, in God's presence, is God's presence in the church something that has become ho-hum to you? Do you have, it's just another church service attitude? Or like Uzzah, do you treat as commonplace that which is sacred? Have you lost your sense of awe and wonder toward the things of God? Or perhaps like David, at first you wanted God's presence, but when you got a glimpse of his absolute holiness, you drew back and you weren't so sure that you wanted to be that close to God. Or like McCall, could you be a spectator who doesn't believe in getting too fanatical or participating from the heart in worship? Or like Obed-Edom, do you welcome the presence of the living God into your life and your home and your heart, resulting in great blessing to you and all of your household? King David's two different responses help us see that even if your heart hasn't been in the right place before in worshiping God, you can still come to him and refocus. The man who was reserved and drew back in God's presence became the man whose heart was so focused on God that he abandoned himself before the Lord. And he didn't care about what other people thought about him, even his wife. I saw a t-shirt that someone was wearing on Tuesday when I took the youth down to Atlanta and we visited the world of Coca-Cola Museum. This person actually leaned right in front of me when we were in the taste testing room to get a sample of one of the different flavors from around the world. I thought, God, this is just like you. As I've been preparing for this sermon, this is what the back of the t-shirt said that the person in front of me was wearing. It said, worship isn't merely something we do, it is who we are. That is so true. We are all worshipers. It's just a matter of what 
or who we are worshiping. Are you a true worshiper of God? Does your daily life reflect that you possess a heart of worship? And do you enter every day, whether it's a Sunday here at church or anywhere you go any other day of the week with an expectation to meet with God and to experience his presence as you walk with him? When it comes to your heart in relation to the presence of God, where are you? Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would increase in our lives. Father, I pray that you would shine so brightly that any thoughts about our own image would completely fade and disappear into the background. Father, I pray that you would help us to shine and reflect the light of your glory. I pray that you would help us to live in greater awe and realization of your presence and worship you with hearts that overflow with gratitude and with wonder and with obedience. Father, I pray you would help us to understand that you alone deserve our worship. And we thank you for being Emmanuel. I know we use that name a lot when we celebrate at Christmas time, but Father, you are God with us every day, every moment. Help us as we leave this sacred place to remember that your presence goes with us and that you've called us to carry your presence everywhere we go in a manner worthy of your great name, that name in which we live and move and have our very being. We thank you for meeting with us here today. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your presence. Help us as we go now to continue being expectant of that and to carry that everywhere we go. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has been wonderful to have you here. And I pray that as you've been here, you've experienced the presence of God. And as you go, you will carry his presence with you. Thank you so much for being here. You're dismissed and you may go in peace.